Hello and welcome back to Friday's episode of the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings and you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's and the main man Jason Lemkin can be found on Twitter at JasonLK. Now our mission is to have Jason on Snapchat by the time of Sasta annual in February 2017 so put that in the diary. Jason will be on Snapchat by then. It is a mission. And talking of Sasta annual 2017 Jason and I would love to see you there and join some of the industry's leading figures like Twilio's Jeff Lawson, Redpoint's Tom Tungas and Upfront's Mark and many more incredible names. And check this out. Jason is so aware of my, how shall we put it, fondness for mojitos that he's allowed us to have a party in honour of the mojito. So if you want to join the party and get an astonishing 20% off your ticket price, then all you have to do is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, and you'll get a fantastic 20% off and free mojitos. And trust me, with the amount of mojitos we will be having, there is more savings to be made from the free mojitos. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome an incredible founder to the hot seat. So joining me today, we have Steve Garrity. Now, Steve is the COO and founder of Hearsay Systems, the leading advisor client engagement solution for the financial services industry. Hearsay have backing from some names that you might just recognize, including the likes of Sequoia, NEA, Kleiner Perkins partner Mike Abbott, and Path founder Dave Morin. Before founding Hearsay, Steve worked as an engineer at Microsoft in Seattle and is a graduate of Stanford University with a BS and MS in computer science. While at Stanford, he was selected as a Mayfield Fellow in the Stanford Technology Ventures program, during which he joined Fortify Software as a product manager. Steve's also an investor and advisor to a number of Silicon Valley's top startups. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Matt McInnes for the intro today. However, enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Steve Garrity, founder at Hearsay. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Steve, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Matt at Inkling for the introduction, but thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, I'd love to get started, though, Steve, with a two to three minute founding story of Hearsay and, and how the business got off the ground in the early days. Clara Shai and I, my co-founder, we actually met freshman year at Stanford studying computer science and, and started kind of taking some classes together. Kind of always joked that it'd be fun to start a company together. Fast forward about 10 years and Claire wrote this book called The Facebook Era that was basically how do businesses use social media to reach their customers. And this was kind of in the early days of social media, if you will. And it was still, you know, everybody thought Facebook was hypey. MySpace was still around in a big way. And things like Twitter and LinkedIn were really kind of just getting started. And so she wrote this book and a bunch of CMOs started reading it and saying, hey, you're right, we need this. Can you help us? And she called me one day. She was at South by Southwest. I had left my job at Microsoft and was being a full-time ski bum in Jackson, Wyoming. (laughs) And she called and said, hey, I've got this idea for the company we're going to do. We talked about it for a while and over a couple months decided that there really was a huge opportunity here. And the opportunity was specifically in how do you help businesses reach people on social media? And so we started working on it. We went through a number of different ideas, most of which were terrible, before we landed on what ended up being kind of our first product at Hearsay, um, which was really a social media management tool, but specifically geared towards salespeople. And the idea was, and this is going to sound like a really dumb insight, but the idea was social media is all about relationships. And most of the people who are using social media in those days were viewing it just as another kind of broadcast channel to put up big billboards. And, and they're taking Web 2.0 ideas and marketing styles and putting them on social and not taking advantage of any of the specific social context and advantages that you got. Mm-hmm. And we said, hey, what if we view it as a way to build relationships? And so we started building tools to help sales reps build relationships and manage one-to-one interactions very, very personally. 
and not, you know, publish to a million people. There are a bunch of great tools for that, but really actually interact with people one-on-one. And you kind of mentioned the building of the tools there. And it brings me to kind of the first big meta topic that I want to discuss with you today in terms of you do have a very much an engineering background. As you said, she called you with regards to the building of the product. So discussing management around engineering, how do you approach it at Hearsay with regards to your engineering team? Yeah, so it's been really interesting. We've we've built the team over the last, it's been seven years now, and it's always been a little bit different than most people think about it for a couple of reasons. One, we're building an enterprise software company. And I tend to argue that most enterprise software companies ironically think of the software as an afterthought. And they're usually very sales-driven cultures. Um, if you look at historically Oracle and Salesforce and things like that, incredibly sales and marketing-driven cultures. And we decided from the beginning that we really wanted to be a product-driven company. Right. And and I make a distinction between kind of engineering driven companies. And I always think of Google as the classic engineering driven company. You can build whatever you want and there's just enough of an ad engine behind it that you can just kind of work on cool stuff. And sometimes it actually turns out to be profitable, but it doesn't really matter that much because of the ads. Then on the flip side, you have these sales driven companies. And I always think in the middle, there's basically a product driven company. And I don't mean product meaning product managers. I mean, product driven what's actually the right thing to build for the customer and how much time are you spending with customers figuring out what are their problems, what are their needs, what what are we going to do to solve them? And so from the beginning, we wanted to build this company that was very focused on customer problems. And I always like to say the customer's problem is always correct, but the customer's solution is very rarely correct, which leads to this approach that says, hey, if we can go out and talk to customers and figure out what their pain point is, we're supposed to be the ones, theoretically, who are good at building software. If we can figure out what their pain point is, we'll be able to find the best software solution to this problem but we need to know what the what the customers need. And so we started building an engineering team very early on that was very comfortable talking to customers. And so to this day, we were just talking about it last week, we still send, and it's hard as you scale, but we're still fighting to do this, send engineers out to customer meetings every week. And so if you're job engineering, like you write code a lot and that's great, but you're also going to be in front of customers. You're also going to be on support calls. You're also going to be getting all this context so that you can actually come back and build better software. And you, you spoke there about the kind of two very differing elements and organizations you can have with regards to sales and marketing driven or engineering driven. How do you look to harmonize the sales and then the engineering culture under one roof? Is it possible to have a cohesive and happy both sales and engineering? I think it's absolutely possible to have both be happy. I think it is really challenging and probably even counterproductive to try to have the same culture between the two, right? I think you can think of kind of a unifying company culture. And so when we think of kind of the the unifying culture of hearsay, it is all about people who are really sharp, people who are really focused on GSD, get shit done, and people who, and then the, so we have basically these three rules, right? Which is kind of high horsepower, people who are GSD, and then the no assholes rule. So we focus very heavily on hiring people who are actually nice. It turns out that's, that's often overlooked in high performing companies. Mm-hmm. And those three things actually are kind of consistent across all the culture, right? Across sales, across marketing, across customer success, across engineering, across um, what we call pie, which is people and infrastructure. And that, that's pretty easy to harmonize. When you get into the nitty gritty of how the teams function, how the teams are motivated, how the teams want to do their day-to-day work, I think it's really, really challenging to have the same culture between engineering and sales. Sales tends to be, for very good reason, this very competitive, usually very compensation-focused organization that's motivated really to go out and close deals, right? And it's it's kind of this, you know, hunter Macho feeling. style. Yeah. And happily, I think you can do it in, in a way that kind of reduces the pure macho, but you're still going to have this very competitive drive. And of course, it's still focused on compensation. People want to be paid fairly. It's still focused on being competitive and being the best, but it's a lot more about Am I building the right thing? Is the thing getting used by customers? Is it making a difference? And is the team functioning well and building good stuff versus sales culture is going to be much more 
Like I, I, I care less about, you know, do they get used or not? And I care a lot more about like, did I sell it? And, and that's okay. I don't think you have to get those two to be the same culturally. And the way we found them to make them mesh. And I think there's always going to be some level of healthy tension, right? In the same way that I always think of the, the canonical example for me there is sales and finance. There actually should be some tension between your sales and your finance orgs, or one of them isn't probably doing their job. Absolutely. It seems kind of interesting to think about healthy tension. It's something a lot of people are uncomfortable with. Yeah, it is. You said about kind of the freedom that you allow the engineering team with regards to the realm of the culture. I'm intrigued as to, is there a barrier to this freedom and how do you set constraints or is it is it not a constraint at all? Is it complete freedom or is there some elements of micromanagement? Yeah, really good question. And it's something I get in trouble a lot, particularly with our sales team when I say that there's all this freedom. I'm like, what? Why do the engineers get to do whatever they want? Don't they have to build what you say? And I look at it as there, there is a constraint at the end of the day, right? And the, the constraint is what's good for the business. And the way I like to think about it is you have this kind of scale on which you can give people choices, right? Everybody has a choice. If you say in a truly kind of canonically micromanagement culture where every single decision is made at the top, every person that works there still has a choice, right? The choice at the end of the day and the only choice they have is do I accept what you're telling me to do or do I quit? And my goal is actually to be as far from that choice as possible because I work really, really hard to recruit great people. And so them quitting sucks. So one of the things I look at is the way that this company is going to be great is because we've got great people and we keep them and they have context and they build better and better stuff. On the flip side, we try to make the choice as early as possible, which is, hey, here's what I think needs to get done. What do you think? Oh, I agree. I'll go do that. Great. Perfect outcome. And and that basically means that everybody having a choice kind of down the lines, we say, hey, we're going to go build this product. Like who wants to work on it? How do you want to build it? What are we going to do? Everybody gets to opt in to just each decision along the way. And it turns out realistically, 80 or 90% of the time, people opt into what you want to do anyways, right? They kind of trust you as a leader that you've got context on the business. And it turns out they're there because they want to build a good business, Mm. right? The, The joke I always use is if people wanted to build games, they wouldn't join hearsay, right? They go to, we're just on the street from Zynga, go join Zynga. You're going to build better games there anyways. And if they want to build games, they're, they're not going to be with us. And so people are like, well, what if people want to build something that's not useful to the business? And I look at it as like, then it's my job as a leader to explain to them what is important to the business. And if they truly sit there and we have a conversation and we agree, yes, X is good for the business and Y is not good for the business. And you still want to build Y then we should have a different conversation about why you're here if you don't want to do what's right for the business. And it turns out I've almost never had to have that conversation. People that join and want to be there want to work on what's good for the business. And all you have to do is give them enough context to know what is good for the business. And not only do you end up in a world where they're more excited and more involved and more likely to stay with you, you also end up in a world where they're making better decisions because they have more access to information than you do. I'm, I'm intrigued by one element there in terms of the discussion with your employees on, on what is and what isn't relevant. Because I, I had a recent guest who said they don't grade their employees. They agree with self-assessment and encouraging them to self-assess their own actions. To, mm-hmm. to Where do you sit on that scale of kind of grading an employee on you've done this and this well, but product X is wrong? To how do you think you did in the self-assessment route? Where do you sit on that scale? It's interesting. I, I think you have to do both. And, and I, I don't like to think of it as grading because I like to think of it as, as just all of us get a chance to give feedback and it should be in an idea. And this is hard to do, right? Quite frankly, but in an ideal world, it's hard. It goes both ways. And and I, I just think of it as we ask everybody to self-assess, whether it's on an individual thing that we're doing or on, you know, kind of a bigger performance review, right? That we do 
do a couple times a year. And we're trying to get that to be kind of a more continuous system. But then everybody also gets feedback. And we focus very heavily on 360 feedback. And so when you get performance feedback, whether it's on your job overall or on how a particular thing went and you're doing a postmortem, we focus very heavily on everybody should be giving feedback. So it's the most junior person should be giving feedback to the most senior person in the room and vice versa. In my mind, it's not about how I think somebody did or how they think they did. It's about what was actually the right outcome for the business. And the way we're going to find that is by kind of all coming together and talking about what happened and how did it go. And there are facts here, right? Like as much as it's hard to believe that in this election cycle, facts still do exist. And inside inside a business, we actually can generally come to them relatively quickly. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess it is, it is my role kind of as a founder and executive in the business to choose if there, if there is a you know disagreement among the facts or what the story is or what actually happened, like, uh, you know, ultimately, I guess I, I make that choice, but I find that it almost never comes down to that. There's almost never a, cha- a place where I have to say, I'm doing this because I said so. It's almost every one of our decisions at the executive team level, at the product team level, anything comes down to, we've talked about this for a little bit and we've decided it's pretty clear this is the right answer. Or we've decided that there is clearly no right answer, anything works, and this is the one we like best. Mm-hmm. And talking about kind of your management style there and kind of potentially a, a top-down approach, I'd love to kind of flip the table and hear about guidance of other people to someone guiding you. So kind of what are your thoughts on executive coaching? Do you think it is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, as some potentially say, or, or do you think it's kind of a universal requirement for everyone to have? I would actually go and say it's it's a near-universal requirement. So I've worked with an executive coach by the name of Chris Holmes, for probably the last four or five years. And I, I can't recommend him highly enough or the idea of having a coat. I think there's a couple things that make a big difference there. One, it's funny. It's just, it's, it's like having a therapist, right? It's, it's literally just the ability to have somebody who you can trust completely and vent to and talk through things that you might just need to talk about out loud that you can't in a lot of other places, right? If somebody who is, if, if they're, if he or she is good at their job, they're not going to go tell anybody else about, you know, what you're worried about. You actually get to just have this kind of comfortable conversation and talk about, Hey, these three things are freaking me out. Let's work through them where you actually can't in a leadership role, have that conversation all the time with a lot of other people, Yeah, right? You, you, you can't go to your board and say, you know, I'm really worried about the performance of X person because yeah. then you've, you've tainted them and they're going to say like, okay, what are you doing about it? And it might be that you just had a bad week and you need to get that out. And, um, you, and you can't go to your employees and say, uh, exactly. you know, we're just not hitting numbers and we got three months of runway. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, so in a funny way, I'd argue that's actually a much easier conversation to have. Really? Well, yeah, because if, again, if you have a great team, they're going to respond well to that conversation. Right. And we've been through that happily. We've never been to, you know, down to three months of runway or anything, knock on wood. But in cases where we've had major business challenges, that's actually a very easy one to go talk to the team about because they, A, they need to know. And B, that's one of those places where more brains focusing on it is probably a good thing. The ones that I find the most challenging to talk to other people about tend to either be things I'm trying to work out in my own head in terms of my own approach or kind of thoughts about how do I get better or how, how am I performing or ones about other people where you can't really go to one of your executives and say, hey, I'm worried about this other executive. What do you think? Because you've kind of predestined the outcome now. So then talk to me, is is this executive coaching only applicable to CEOs and execs in the company? Or do you think it's actually applicable to a much broader customer base? Yeah, so it's interesting. We've just started experimenting with this recently. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that coaching in some form is something that you actually want to apply to as deep down into the company as you can. Right. And obviously there's, you know, how much can you afford and how much can you scale? And and it's not, you know, immediately saying 
everybody on the team should get a coach and, and spend you know, a couple hours a week with them. But it, I actually think there's there's a lot of utility to it. And we're trying with more and more, more and more of our execs to get coaching help just to say like, hey, this is a, this is a resource for you. I think it's I had a really fascinating conversation with my dad the other night where he grew up in a big pharmaceutical company and he was there for 20 years and retired as a senior exec and, and had kind of commented on how much they had invested over the years in employee development and what an obscene amount of their budget, a finance guy, what, are the, what an incredible amount of their budget they had invested in developing their people. And he was asking me you know, what our budget was for L&D and, and how much we invested in it. And it was lower than what they had, not only in absolute dollars, because this is a you know multi-billion dollar international pharma company, but, but it was a, you know, as a percentage of revenue. And his observation was that one of the things we think is sort of true is as we move into this kind of high tech hype, like fast paced world, we tend to think of things that are much shorter term and it's easy to get swept away in the like, well, I just have to get through this year. I just have to get through this quarter mentality. And, and we don't need to invest as much in, in what will really not possibly pay off for one, two, three years in terms of developing people, developing teams. Can, can, can you, can you justify to... that long-term spend to the board though? Do you think? I think you can. We're lucky enough to have a board, which is, which is very long-term focused and, and we're trying to build a long-term company. And so I think, well, I can't necessarily go say we're going to go spend 20% of revenue on employee development. I think we can certainly justify, and we, we are moving towards this model where we're spending more on that and saying, yeah, you know what? Like This is an investment that's not going to pay off over the next six months, but we can actually average into it and say, this is going to pay off over the next couple of years. And we've been around for seven years. We're going to be around for a lot longer. It's probably worth the spend. And to me, coaching is one of the first ways you do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I really agree with the employee self-development process. But I want to dive into a quick fire with you now. So it's called 60 Seconds Faster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Okay. Sounds great. So let's start with what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started here, say? I think I wish I'd understood the enterprise sales motion a lot better. It's a great book. Actually, Claire recommended it to me called Hope is Not a Strategy, which I wish I had basically memorized before we started the company. Hope is not a strategy. Okay, I'm going to put yeah. that. I, I haven't actually read that, so I'm putting that down it's a, it's a It's a wonderful book. It, it, it kind of breaks down enterprise selling into what I think of as a relatively rational model in terms of less of this kind of black magic and more of like, hey, there's actually some science is probably too strong, but you know, there's actually some science to this. And here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a framework to think about it and how to put it together, which particularly to me as an engineer was very, very helpful. Okay. I'm too intrigued. What's the framework? It's thinking about where influence happens in the organization. Who do you have to convince and what are the different steps, right? So it's a relatively simple, it's a, it's a sales pipeline is a simple way of looking at it along with how do you think about each and state of the sales cycle and how am I going to move through it? What are the three objectives to do this? Not it's a black box. It may, it may be, maybe the way I think about it is it breaks down how people buy software and walks you through how you're going to convince them that, you're, that they should do that. Mm -hmm. And then what's been the biggest challenge to you with Hearsay? I think the biggest challenge has probably been recruiting. There is a really fine balance between hiring quickly enough and hiring really great people. And, and where do you kind of tip over and say, you know, we should take the chance on this person versus no, we should, we should wait and look for somebody who is more proven, has more of a track record. And, and we've got some, you know, some of the best people that we've worked with over the years of people we've been taking, we have been people we have taken large chances on and it's worked out wonderfully, but there's always risk to that. Always risk. Yeah. It's a tough one to strike. SaaS companies always underprice their goods, agree or disagree. Always is a strong word, but I generally agree. Do you always err on charging more and, and kind of negotiating down? 
Yes. Yeah. And and customization, does that play a role in your sales process? We've taken a, a really pretty strong approach on customization, which is we won't do customization, period. We will basically change the order of things that are already on our roadmap to suit specific customers. And so the way of thinking about that, canonical example, the first time we ever built single sign-on integration, we knew we had to build SSO. It was, And we built this in like the first year of the company, but we knew we had to do it. But we didn't want to just go build it without having a customer that was going to use it because it's just it's impossible to get it right and, and what are the actual standards going to be. And so when our first customer who wanted SSO signed, we said, great, we'll, we will build SSO for you and it will work just with your system to start. But we knew we were going to build it because everybody wanted it. And, and then, so, and then you also get a brand advocate out of that because they think you're personalizing it to them, I guess. Exactly. And they get really excited. It works very well for them. But you've built this reusable piece of code that you're going to use for every one of your customers. Mm -hmm. And the more customers, and I always kind of joke, it's the Fibonacci sequence. Like the first customer requires customization. The second customer probably does. Then the third one probably doesn't. And then you go and you keep adding up. And and every, as you go, it's fewer and fewer customers require customization. But you get to the point where now, you know, anybody that goes with our SSO, it just works out of the box. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first time we built it was custom. But we, we didn't build, we've never built any, never is probably a strong word, but I can't think of any time that we've built anything that was truly custom that we knew only one customer was going to use. If we're going to build it and spend our precious engineering resources on it, it needs to be reusable. I love that tactical way to, to build the brand advocate. But I, I want to finish today and, and moving out of the quickfire on, on the topic of systems. So first, let's start with operational systems and processes and to what extent you believe they're necessary for you. Yeah, so I think we've, we've spent a lot of time in the last year focusing on this at Hearsay, specifically in the kind of operating rhythms and systems world. And, and I think we're far from done, but I think we've made a lot of good progress in terms of increasing our ability as a company to execute, I would say, both efficiently and reliably. And, and those are two very different things that you optimize for. I, I tend, to, I, I tend to, to make a distinction in my head, rightly or wrongly, between systems and process. I have a very allergic reaction to the word process for some reason, probably because I watched Office Space too many times. <laughs> and it just, it, it just fills me with dread of TPS reports. And these kind of unnecessary processes that get in the way that are very human labor centric and that are, are kind of just, you know, process for process's sake. Cumbersome. Cumbersome, exactly. And frustrating and just not and, you know, disheartening and everything else versus what I think of as systems that are really, you know, hey, how do we actually make humans' jobs easier? Right? How do we automate things? And it might still require human work. But how do we automate things to make your job easier and and more effective and make the output more reliable? And so we've spent a lot of time focusing on our sales process and how our sales team communicates and how we run forecasts and renewals and things like that so that it gets more and more streamlined. We've spent a lot of time focusing on how our customer success team works and how they train customers and how that's more reproducible and how they evaluate how an account is doing and getting more and more systematic about that. We spent a lot of time working on how the, and again, we're, we're probably 10% of the way there, despite the time we've invested here in how the company communicates and, and systematizing the things like, you know, how team meetings run, what gets on the agenda, what gets reminded, what, what people get reminded about when. And then finally, I would say, and this has kind of always been my, my personal favorite thing to think about and work on, on the engineering side, on our workflow and tooling around like how systems get built, how code gets deployed, how it gets tested. We spent a lot of time integrating various tools to give our engineering team a huge advantage in how fast they can build and ship things. Mm-hmm. And and every time we do it, we wish we'd done it a year earlier. So 
as I say this, there's probably 20 things that we should have done last year that we haven't done yet, and we're slowing down, and I just don't know it yet. But we've consistently invested there a lot, and every time we've invested, it's paid off. And then last question, and you said about time there. At, at what stage do you think startups should really consider investing in systems and and processes to kind of make their workflow more seamless and, and make the operation itself run more smoothly is there a, is there a time when this suddenly becomes of paramount importance yeah i mean i think it's from day one i think it's it's really important to get this stuff right from day one that said i think it requires a ton of judgment to figure out what you're going to do repeatedly repeatedly and what you're not and so I feel like most startups, most companies underinvest in these systems to automate things because it, it, it actually slows your velocity down in the short term, which is what you really care about because you're like, oh my God, we're going to die if we don't ship this thing tomorrow. And if we take an extra four hours to get this right, that might slow us down. It might not make it across the line. And that's obviously a concern. But I think in the end, most people underinvest in this. There is the flip side. And I've seen this and you know, with all due respect to entrepreneurs that came out of Google, I've seen this happen most consistently with friends from Google, where they build these beautiful startup code bases that can scale to a million requests per second. And they have on the website, they never in the history of the company have crossed like 10 concurrent requests. And I'm thinking maybe that was slightly over-engineered, didn't quite need that system in place yet. But I see a lot less of that than I do of of people who have over-invested in systems. And so I would say day one, that's not true, we've never regretted. We rarely regret investments we've made in systems. And the ones we've made have far outweighed the time we've wasted building systems we didn't need. Well, Steve, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As I said, Matt said it was just absolutely paramount that we had you on the show. And I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time. No problem. Thanks, Harry. And I guess thanks to Matt for for getting me in here. This was fantastic. And I think you'll agree with me in stating what a fantastic episode that was with Steve and a huge thanks to him for giving up the time today to be on the show. And I also do want to say again, a huge thanks to Matt McInnes at Inkling for the intro today, without which the episode would not have been possible. I do also want to say how much I would love to see you at Sasta Annual 2017. We want to welcome you to the Mojito Party. So all you need to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you purchase your tickets. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, and you'll get 20% off the ticket price and free mojitos with me, Jason and a whole load of other SaaS leading figures. It'd be absolutely fantastic to see you there. However, as always, I so appreciate the support for the episode today and I cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode.